the Torah has a very clear description of what happens if a man suspects his wife of being an adulteress. He first takes her in front of two Adim and warns her, do not go into seclusion with that man. He has reasons to suspect, he has reasons to be suspicious. He first gives her warning in front of two witnesses, don't go into seclusion with that man. If she violates that warning and she's found to be in seclusion with that man, she's brought to the coin. She's brought to the coin in the base of Migdash, and an entire process, the coin tries to make sure that she admits if she's guilty, because if she doesn't, the ramifications are quite serious. If she is willing to go through with it, the coin takes the name of Hashem from a cloth, scrapes it off, adds some water from the ground of the Mikdash, the Mishkan, adds water to this all, gives it to her to drink, and if in fact she's innocent, then she'll find great bracha in her life, she'll have children, she'll have children without difficulty. However, if she is guilty of being unfaithful to her husband, then she will die on that spot. And this is the parish of Sota, and the concept of a illicit relationship while a woman is married to her husband. But what's interesting to note is the Torah uses a very unusual expression, kitiste ishto, tiste, if a man suspects his wife, and tiste ishto, now tiste is an unusual word, it doesn't mean he gives her to drink, first of all, he's not giving her to drink, the coin's giving her to drink. And the word tiste has a shorish, has a root that's hard to understand. Says Rashi on this pasuk, the adulterers will not commit an act of adultery until a wave of insanity enters into them. That the adulterers will not commit such an act until a wave of insanity enters their mind. The Sifte Chacham, in one of the commentaries in Rashi, is bothered by an obvious problem. If they're insane, they're not culpable. If you tell me that no adulterer will commit this act unless a wave of insanity enters them, then they're not in their right mind. If they're not in their right mind, they're not held responsible, how could it be that they would be considered of people who've sinned? They're not responsible for their actions. Explains the Sifte Chachamim, Koloma, what it means to say, Sheyitzram Hara, their Yitzahara, their evil inclination, Morelem Heter, teaches them that it's permitted. And what does Rashi mean that the adulterers won't commit an act of adultery until a wave of insanity enters them? It doesn't mean a wave of insanity. It's an allegory. It means until their desire teaches them morelem heta, teaches them that it's permitted. And that's how the Sivdei Chomim explains Rashi that the adulterers won't commit an act until they have a more heter. Now here's the problem with this Sivdei Chomim. Mora heter is a very specific expression. You have a mora hara. A mora hara is a teacher of halacha. Mora is a teacher. Heter is permitted. A mora heter means that a guidance has taught you that it is permitted. Meaning what the Sifte Chamim is saying is that no adulterer will commit this act until they have a very strong logic that it's permitted. Now that sounds very problematic. How could you take an act like a rias, illicit relation, and make it permitted? You could tell me I'm tempted, you could tell me I gave in, you could tell me I'm weak. But how could there be a moraheter? How could there be a logic that says it's permitted? It's not permitted, it's forbidden. And to make this question a little bit stronger, let's focus in on something. Rashi is saying there's a rule for everyone. No adulterer will commit an act of adultery, of being unfaithful, unless they have this moraheter. 
Now imagine we have a tsunua, a very modest woman. She's brought up in the finest home, <clears throat> went to the finest Beis Yaakovs, she went to seminary in Israel, and then she got married. As things worked out, it was a dead-end marriage, and things went from bad to worse, and she is miserable. She's unhappy, unfulfilled, she's in a loveless marriage, and she meets a nice guy. She meets a nice guy, and Nebuch, she gives in, and she lives with him in sin. How could you tell me that her Yetzirah, her desire is going to be Morehet, is going to tell it's permitted? She knows it's forbidden. The Torah says, what, what, maybe the Torah was given on Shabbos and today's Tuesday. There's no room to be more ahead. There's no room to say that it's permitted. So if we're dealing with an honest and proper woman who's modest, there's no room to say it's permitted. Maybe you'll tell me we're dealing with a different kind of woman, a promiscuous woman. If a woman is totally promiscuous, she doesn't care. I don't care what the Torah says. I don't care about God. I don't care about the world to come. If that's her state, what does she need the heter for? And what does she need the permission? What does she need her Yetzirah telling her that it's permitted? It doesn't matter. So no matter which end you slice it, it sounds very difficult to make such an act permitted, and it sounds very difficult to understand why, in fact, it's at all needed. And to answer this question, I think we have to better understand the way Hashem created us, the human. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting observation. If you've ever read a novel, a novel that was set back hundreds of years ago, and a man went out to war, and he fought bravely. And then after many, many months, he comes home, and he finds out that his whole village has been sacked, and he's broken, and he's crying, and you find yourself tearing up along with him. You ever notice that if you read a book that's well-written, you feel the emotions that the character in the book is feeling? And that's very strange, because I didn't live 200 years ago. I wasn't a warrior out there in the fields. I didn't come home and find my town sacked. But if you read a well-written novel, you identify with it, you relate to it, and you feel along with the characters. And what that means in plain, simple language is, if you're reading a novel about an action event, you're going to be involved in it. If it's a romance, you're going to be involved in it. If you go to a movie, and you notice that the hero is walking down a dark alley, and suddenly the tempo of the music changes, and suddenly you're... He's, Someone jumps him, kicks, punch, kicks, punch. <gasps> if you take your pulse right then, your palms are sweaty, your pulse is racing, but here's the problem. I'm not in a fight. It's smoke and mirrors. There's just light shining at the front over there. Why is my heart racing? Why am I crying? Why am I laughing? Why am I so involved in this? And just to make this totally clear... If you watch the credits, you'll notice that Hollywood has something called the casting director. The casting director has a very particular role to play. His role is to find the actor that best fits the part. Now, you may say that's not so difficult. There's a lot of talent in Hollywood. But the problem is the actor has to be believable. He's got to fit the role in a way that's credible. But there's something else that has to be... He has to be the actor that the audience can identify with. Because when the actor is winning the gold medal in the Olympics, it's not him, but it's me. When he's crashing down through that bush over there, it's not him, but it's me. And for a movie to be successful, the actor has to be someone that the audience identifies with. And what you begin to discover is there's a strange feature in the human called imagination. Imagination is this force within the human that I could take something that I know is fictional, I know it's fanciful, yet I feel it, I experience it, 
as if it's happening to me. And imagination is a very, very potent force in the human. It allows me to take something that I know isn't true and feel it as if it is true. And if you'd like to know why Hashem put this force of imagination into the human, it's for a very significant reason. And to understand that reason, let me focus you on a question I've asked before, but it bears repeating. Does a malach have free will? Does an angel have free will? Ask any school-aged child in yeshiva, does an angel have free will? The answer is no. Adam, man has free will, a malach doesn't. The only problem is that's utterly incorrect. An angel has free will as man has free will. As a matter of fact, there are many times when angels veer off, they'll go too far in the honor of Hashem, and there are times when they're actually punished. An angel has free will as man has free will. The difference between a malach and a man is very different. You see, a malach sees things with absolute clarity. A malach understands that every commandment that Hashem commanded it in is good for it, good for the world in general. And more than that, a malach sees with utter clarity that any avera, any sin, is damaging to itself and damaging to the entire world. A malach has free will, but not the kind of free will that man has. If you'd like to understand the kind of free will that we have, it's really quite simple. If I were to pull out a $1,000 bill, and I were to say to you, I'll give you this $1,000 bill if you put your hand in a fire for one minute. Would you take me up on the bet? Now, if you're not sure that you wouldn't, I'll take you to a burn unit of a hospital, and you'll see very quickly, you wouldn't do it for $1,000, you wouldn't do it for $100,000. Why? Because it's self-inflicted damage. It's foolish. All the temptation in the world wouldn't pull you to do it because it's destroying you. And when you understand that, you understand the difference between man and a malach. You see, a malach has a type of free will as I do to put my hand in a fire. Again, if I were to offer you $100,000, do you have free will? You do. In theory, you could. You'll never do it because it's utterly foolish, but you could. In that sense, a malach has free will. In theory, a malach could disobey Hashem. A malach could deny Hashem. But that would be utterly ridiculous because it would understand it's damaging itself, damaging the world, and therefore in theory it has free will, but not practically. And that is the great difficulty in creating man. How do you take man, a neshama? Remember, before I was in this body, I, the one I'm speaking to you, I, the one who feels, I was under Hashem's throne of glory, and Hashem put me into this body. But here's the problem. My neshama, the I, is brilliant. I understand the consequences. I realize that I'm here for a few short years. And every action that I engage in is something that will shape me, mold me for eternity. Every mitzvah makes me grow. Every avera damages me. And everything that Hashem cautions me is for my good. And I understand that. So how do I have free will? So the first part of that is when Hashem put us into the body, Hashem also put a nefesh, a bahami, an animal soul. The I whom speaking to you really have two parts. There's the I, the neshama, but mixed in is all of the inclinations, the drives of the any animal in the animal kingdom, what we call the nefesh abahami, the animal soul. So when I'm speaking to you, there's a constant fight, a constant battle between the neshama and the animal soul. One or the other is always going to gain primacy. Whichever one you exercise more is going to become dominant is going to become prominent whichever one you use less will become weaker but there's a constant battle between the neshama 
and the Nefesh of Bahami. But even then, man doesn't have free will. Why? Because again, let's assume you put an Adam, you put a great Neshama into the body and there's a Nefesh of Bahami, an animal soul. And the animal says, I want. I would never engage in an activity that's destructive. Because much like if I were to offer you $100,000, no matter how tempted you are, you wouldn't burn your hand off. It's utterly foolish. It's self-inflicted death. You would never do it. So too, if I had all of the animal drives in the world, all of the instincts in the world, I wouldn't engage in anything that violates the Torah because I understand it's damaging to me. For eternity, I'll be diminutive. For eternity, I'll be maligned. I'll be damaged. No matter how tempted I would be, I would never engage in action that Hashem warned me not to because I so clearly see the consequences and I understand that it's me for eternity based on what I shape myself into. So how do you give Adam, how do you give man free will? And to allow for actual free will, Hashem introduced this other component, this component called imagination. Imagination, again, is that fanciful ability to feel, to experience something, even though I know it's not true. And now watch what happens within the human. Now when I desire something, I want it, but I don't. I do, but I don't. I do, but I I will not do it. Why not? Because it's forbidden. It's not forbidden. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. What you'll quickly find is that the human being is capable of extraordinary, fanciful, imaginative thought processes, and he's quite capable of creating entire fanciful dreams that allows him to do exactly what he wants to do. And that is the power of imagination. And when you see it in full operation, you understand how there's something called free will. Because now, the minute I desire something, it's no longer a battle between something I know that's wrong, but I want to do it. Uh Uh-uh. Who said it's wrong? And maybe it's okay. And all of a sudden, my imaginative side, my fanciful dreaming side can allow me to accept theories and entire Weltanschauung, entire worldviews that become utterly corrupt and that allow me to believe exactly what I'd like to believe. And that is the way Hashem created the human being because thereby I have free will. And if you'd like to understand the answer to what Rashi is saying, for the Tznua, the modest woman, she desperately craves this relationship and she knows it's wrong. And she can't do it if it's wrong. But suddenly within a heartbeat, her mind starts racing. Who said it's wrong? Maybe it's okay. Hashem understands. Circumstances are different. The situation is different. Hashem will forgive me. And in a heartbeat, her mind begins spinning out all types of theories, all types of rationales. And within a short amount of time, she'll be more heter. Her desire will teach her that it is permitted. Not that it's forbidden, but do it anyway. Not that like, what are you going to do? You're weak. What are you going to do? Uh-uh. It's permitted. Because she would never do it if it's not permitted. And again, to allow for free will, Hashem gave us this capacity to believe exactly what we want to believe. And that's exactly how a very modest woman, who could be very pious, very religious, yet she could go so far down the garden path that her nature teaches us it's permitted. The nefesh bahami, the animal soul, takes hold of her brain and begins to speak in her voice, begins to say words that sound just like her, and suddenly before you know it, that act is permitted. He's a good guy. Hashem would never forbid this. 
This is not what the Torah means by illicit relations, and before you know it, it is permitted. And I believe that's the answer to the tznuah. That's why Rashi says, the menafim, the adulterers, will not commit an act unless a wave of insanity enters them. A wave of insanity means until moraheter, until their nature teaches them it's permitted, and that's how we understand the tznuah, the modest woman. But what about the prutza? What about the promiscuous woman? The woman who said, I don't care about God, I don't care about the Torah, I don't care about the world to come. She doesn't need a heter. Why does she need her nefesh Bahami, her yetzer, to tell her that it's mutter? She doesn't need it to be permitted. She doesn't care. And to understand that side of the equation, I'd like to share with you another interesting observation. In the 1930s, there lived a man named Two-Gun Crowley. Two-Gun Crowley was also known as Crowley the cop killer. The New York City Police Commissioner defined him as the most ruthless criminal who ever walked the streets of New York. He said he would kill at the drop of a hat. In any case, Two-Gun Crowley fired his last shot in a shootout with the New York City Police. He was in his West End apartment, and 10,000 onlookers watched from the street as he held the New York City Police Department at bay. And they surrounded him all sides, the machine guns mounted on, on buildings. They were shooting at him from the window, he was shooting out. And for an hour, the city streets of New York exploded with gunshots. And finally, he was shot in the chest. They broke in from the apartment on top of him, found him hunched over his desk. Apparently, before he was shot, he realized he wasn't going to make it out. And he wrote a last will and testament. And when the police entered, this is what they read. On a sheet of paper, drenched in his blood were the words, Under my coat lies a lonely heart, but a good heart, a heart that would do no man harm. Now, I want to explain to you how Tugun Crowley ended up in that apartment. A few hours earlier, he was in Central Park. He was in his car. A policeman came over and asked him for his license and registration. And this was the 1930s. He could have easily driven away. There were no radios back then, no radar. No one would have found him. But why take a chance? He reaches in, supposedly, to pull out his wallet. Instead, he pulls out a revolver, shoots the cop six times. He jumps out of the car and takes the policeman's service revolver, shoots him again until he's good and dead, gets back in his car and drives off. A good heart. A heart that would do no man any harm. Now, amazingly, when he was hunched over that sheet of paper, his last will and testament, he wasn't dead. He was unconscious. When the police broke in, they took him off to the hospital, they operated on him, he survived, and he stood trial, and he was sentenced to be murdered, to be executed in the electric chair. On the way to the electric chair, he was overheard saying these words, this is what I get for trying to defend myself. Now, you may look at Tugun Crowley and say, what a psychopathic individual, what a pathological, insane person. But I'd like to share with you, Tugun Crowley was rather sane. <clears throat> In the book by Dan Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he writes about an ongoing series of letters that he had with the warden of Sing Sing. Sing Sing in those days was the most, that was the maximum security prison. The real hardened criminals were sent to Sing Sing. And the warden of Sing Sing told Dale Carnegie, every single man in his prison is innocent. Everyone has a story, an excuse, a reason. Not a man here deserves to be behind bars. And this is a rather interesting phenomenon. If you find me a heinous criminal, if you find me an evil person, 
They don't say, yes, I'm evil, but every person rides on a white steed, wears a white hat, and is a hero in his own biography. And no matter how depraved he is, no matter how evil he is, he doesn't say, yes, I'm wicked, but hey, I want to do it. Uh Uh-uh. And as a matter of fact, the more depraved and the more evil they are, the more the whitewashing goes on. By the way, Adolf Hitler wrote an 800-page treatise. Mein Kampf is 800 pages of his philosophy of why he's doing mankind a service by ridding them of the Jews. He didn't say, I hate the Jews because I hate them. I hate them for a very good reason. And 800 pages of drivel you could read why the Jews are lice, they're menace, they're vermin, and I'm servicing mankind by getting rid of them. Because no matter how wicked a person is, they can't view themselves as a wicked person. And would you like to know why? Because Hashem put a neshama into every human being. And that neshama is so great. And that neshama aspires to everything holy and good. And even a wicked person was given a neshama. And that neshama knows what's right and proper. And for that neshama to do something wrong, it can't possibly do it. It can't possibly engage in something that's wrong and evil. And therefore Hashem gave free will by allowing this imagination allowing a person to paint the picture exactly as they like, and a person could create entire worldviews, entire theologies, to make permitted and good that which I want to do. And this is not about heinous criminals. I saw this in a very interesting example, upfront and personal. I was a Rebbe for many years in Rochester, Yeshiva, and for a while there was a string of Genevas. It went on for a number of months that things were missing, money was missing, from different guys, and no one could find out who was doing it. And it became a big issue in the yeshiva, and finally, after a number of months, they found the person, and I was shocked, because he was a guy in my shir, and he was a very good guy, a guy I was very friendly with, and it didn't make sense, it didn't add up. So I called him in, I said, hey, I want to talk to you a little bit. What's 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 doing? And he said, yeah, I got caught. I said, I don't understand, these are your buddies, these are your friends, I, I don't get it. What, what were you doing? He said, Rabbi, you got to understand. Listen, this guy has a job in the summer. This guy gets money from his parents. Everybody needs money. This is how I make money. He was not a thief, because a thief is lowly. A thief is disgusting. He was given a neshama that's pure and holy, and that pure and holy neshama would never allow him to do something like steal from his friends. It's what he did for a living. And this is a capacity you'll never find a human being who does anything wrong. What I do is right, is good, is permitted, because I have this incredible capacity to make it right, to make it permitted, and I believe that's exactly the answer to the prutza. No matter how promiscuous that woman is, no matter how much she says, I don't care about God, I don't care about the religion, I don't care about the world to come, the only way she can do an act is if it's permitted. And she was given that imagination, that ability to make it permitted, but she could never do it, because any human being has a pure, holy soul, a soul that has the capacity to be greater than the greatest malachim, and the only way that that person could ever do something wrong is by making it right, and that is one of the strange phenomena of us human beings. You'll never find a human being doing anything wrong. That's just the way we are. And I believe this has a lot of um, interesting applications in our world. And let me explain to you what I mean. In the 1960s, in Western civilization, 
there was a upheaval, a counterculture revolution that changed much of what was accepted throughout history in mankind. And Moray's morals, normalcy was thrown out the window, give in to your desire, throw away your inhibitions, and a radical change was brought about in the sense of man. And since that time, there have been great repercussions, and it hasn't ended. What has happened since is there's a tremendous inability to resist anything wrong, and not just that, anything wrong quickly becomes right. And I'll explain to you an interesting manifestation of this. There was a huge movement in the 1980s of biological politics. Let me explain to you what I mean. In San Francisco in 1979, a civil servant named Dan White resigned his seat on the city board of supervisors. He decided he no longer wants that job, so he quit. And the mayor appointed someone else to take his place. And when Dan White found that his position was taken, he decided, no, he made a mistake, he wants his position back. So he goes to the mayor, Mayor Moscone, and says, I want my position back. The mayor said, I'm sorry, I already gave it to someone else. And Dan White was furious. He was furious. He was so furious that he went home, found his gun, climbed in a window into City Hall because there were metal detectors, he couldn't come in the front door, shot the mayor seven times in the chest, shot his assistant, killed them both. And he was caught, and Dan White stood trial. And Dan White's lawyers defended him with what became known as the Twinkie Defense. <clears throat> the Twinkie Defense is that Dan White consumed so much white sugar, <clears throat> so much garbage, so much junk, that he had a diminished mental capacity, leaving him incapable of premeditated murder. And amazingly, <clears throat> the jury bought it, and they sentenced him to a maximum of seven years and eight months in jail. After 20 months, he was let out. Okay, how about this? In Los Angeles, a woman killed her son, her infant son, and she stood trial, and the judge said she's innocent. Why? Because she was suffering postpartum depression. Now, I know women who suffer postpartum depression. They don't kill the baby. But the judge found that a reason enough to let her off the hook. In England, a woman was acquitted of murdering her boyfriend. But I want you to hear how she murdered her boyfriend. Her boyfriend was standing by a utility pole. She rammed her car, smashed it right into him, crushed them against this telephone pole. And she stood trial. And her lawyer defended her that she was suffering from premenstrual syndrome, and the judge let her off the hook. Now, many women have suffered through PMS. It's a reality. But they don't go murdering people. But the judge felt it was appropriate reason to let her off the hook. How about in San Antonio, Texas? A man confessed to raping a woman three times, and the jury agreed that he's innocent because he had a high testosterone level. Now, these things sound absurd. And these things sound so ridiculous that you can't believe they happened in Western civilization. But they happened because there's a victim society, an excuse epidemic, where whatever it is, I'm not responsible. I can't be held accountable. It's my genetics. It's my biology. And if I can't find any other excuse, it's my mother. My mother ruined my life. You know why I'm this way? I am, I'm this way because my mother... And you hear people say this stuff all the time, and even today, people use these kind of lines. 
And I want to explain something very, very basic. There's a world of difference between making an excuse and being an excuse. Making an excuse means I punch you. I lost my temper. I really shouldn't, but I was under a lot of pressure. I was in a bad mood. That's called making an excuse. But if you make an excuse, you have hope of one day not making excuses and one day rectifying yourself and changing. If you are an excuse, I can't help myself because I am hot-headed. I can't help myself because I am depressed. I can't help myself because I am an angry person or I'm a drunk or I'm sick or I'm out of control. You are the excuse and then there's no hope. Why? Because guess what? I can't change. I'm not accountable. I'm not responsible. And I'd like to share with you something that I find very, very profound. For almost 10 years in my study, now you can see my study is almost wall-to-wall swarm. And there's almost no place for a picture. But for almost 10 years, it was a small gold-plated certificate that stayed on one shelf. And anyone who came in was able to see this. Now, I'll explain to you in a minute what was written on this gold-plated certificate. But first, I'll explain to you how I won this award. I was a high school rebbe for many years, and I would teach the guys what I call people skills. People skills means how to be, live amongst people. And I would tell the guys over and over, if you mess up, if you blow it, be man enough, say the words, I messed up, I made a mistake, and there is no excuse. I would tell them, don't ruin a good apology with a but. You see, an apology says what I did was wrong. The but says what I did was right. Don't ruin a good apology. If you messed up, you made a mistake, you didn't mean to, say the words, I apologize, and stop. Don't ruin a good apology with a but. But, but, because what a but does is, it says that I am right. In any case, I was driving from Rochester to Queens, and apparently I was driving a little too fast, and I got pulled over by a state trooper. And the state trooper comes over to the side of my car. I roll down the window, and he says, Do you know why I stopped you? I said, Officer, I believe I was speeding. I apologize. There's no excuse. He looked at me and said, What? I said, Officer, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I try to obey the law. I was speeding. There's no excuse. I'm sorry. He looked at me and didn't say a word. Turned around, walked back to his car, and three minutes later comes back with a handwritten citation, a warning not to speed anymore. He didn't write me a ticket, but he wrote me a handwritten citation. I put that citation in a gold frame because that was my graduation certificate. It took me 20 years of learning Musser to say the words, what I did was wrong, and there is no excuse. And I'd like to share with you that that is one of the most powerful tools for any human relationship. Any human relationship, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to mess up, and the ability to say the words, what I did was wrong, I apologize, and then not ruin it with a but, is one of the keys to people skills, one of the keys to being a successful person. Now, you don't have to be married to try this out, but it happens to be that marriage is probably the most intense relationship, the most demanding relationship, and the single relationship where you will find this to be the most true. But try this on me. If you're in a situation with your spouse, or again, it could be a friend, or it could be a co-worker, or it could be a boss, whatever it may be, 
and you exchange words. You said, he said, you said, he said, back and forth, back and forth. And at a certain point, you realize you're wrong. In fact, you realize you're dead wrong. You ever notice that it's very, very difficult, very difficult to say the words, I was wrong. Now, I don't get it. I know I was wrong. I 100% I was wrong in what I did. I know it. More than that, she knows it. I know I was wrong. She knows I was wrong. And I know that she knows. And I know that she knows that I know that I was wrong. So everybody here gets it. We all know I was wrong. Why is it so hard? And as a matter of fact, I'd like to share with you the most difficult words you'll ever say in a marriage and probably in any relationship is the words, I was wrong. Yes, dear, isn't so hard to say. You were right, even, is not so bad. But try saying the words, I was wrong, and mm, not a word after. Why is it so difficult? Would you like to understand why? It's so difficult because in my mind, I'm very, very skilled at whitewashing, at creating considerations and buts. Yes, what I did was wrong, but you have to understand the circumstances, the situation, and what I do is I create these fanciful imaginative states where what I did wasn't so wrong, and what I did wasn't so bad. And for me to actually say the words, what I did was wrong, and not excuse it, means that I'm able to actually grip it in reality, be man enough to do it, stand up and really hold by it. And try this on me. The next time you get into a fight, I want you, especially if you're wrong, not necessarily only if you're wrong, but especially if you're wrong, I want you to try this. I want you to go over to your spouse or your friend or your boss, or whoever it may be, and try saying these words, I was wrong, I apologize. And you know what you're going to find? I guarantee what you're going to find, because I've been there many a time. Your knees are going to start shaking. Your arms are going to... And you can't say the... Why can't you say the words? But I don't mean a little thing, you know, I was wrong. No, I mean when you get into a fight, when you get into an issue, and you said, and he said, you back and forth, and to then admit that you were wrong is so difficult. But do you understand why it's so difficult? It's so difficult because there's a part of me that says, I could not do ever something that's wrong. There's a greatness within the human that won't allow me to do anything wrong. That's my neshama. And for me to have to actually admit that I did wrong is a battle royale. But it's one of the greatest moments of truth in your existence. And because you're starting to cut through the lies. You're starting to be a person of integrity. You're starting to be a person who speaks the truth, thinks the truth. Rabbi Sarsalanta says, Emes means only speaking words that I know in my heart are true. And training your tongue to only say words that are true and not words that aren't true it requires an awful lot of work. And if you do this, and you say the words, what I did was wrong, and you don't say another word, you don't ruin the apology with a but, you'll find something very, very profound. First of all, you're going to catch people by shock. Huh? What? Where's the but? Do you understand what happens in every situation? <clears throat> he did that, she did that, he did that, and he decides he's going to apologize. So he says the words, you know, dear, <clears throat> what I did was wrong, but... So let me explain to you exactly what she's thinking. When he says the words, what I did was wrong, he doesn't have a clue to how much he hurt me. He would ne- Listen, I know he's not a creep, he's not evil, so he must have not understand, and he's apologizing, that's okay, but he clearly doesn't understand how much he hurt me, and he doesn't understand how bad it was. But when he says the words, what I did was wrong, at least he's coming closer to my position. But then he says the but. But you know what the but says? 
the butt says what he did was right. Not only did this creep do what he did, now he's defending himself with the butt. So what does she do? She fights against the butt and says, what do you mean the butt? What do you mean? What you did wasn't justified, it wasn't okay? What does he do? He defends the butt. But no, it was okay. No, it wasn't. And the fight becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. Don't ruin a good apology with the butt. The apology says, I was wrong. The butt says, I was right. The minute you said, I was wrong, and you stop, something strange happens. You change the whole relationship. So she'll say back, you didn't really mean it, you didn't mean it. No, really, there's no excuse. What I did was wrong, there's no excuse. But you don't really understand how many... No, you're right. I, I don't understand. I never would have done it. <clears throat> I, didn't ever, I would never do something to hurt you. I didn't realize it, and, and, and there's no excuse. I, I should have... Should've. But, 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 but... And if you do that two times, three times, four times, the fight ends. And again, while this is obviously very applicable to marriage, it's a yesod, a principle, a foundational principle in any human relationship. Don't ruin the apology with a but. Number one, when you apologize, recognize that strange reality, that to be able to stand up and have the fortitude and say the words, I was wrong, requires such courage. Why? Because I constantly make excuses in my mind's eye. I constantly excuse away my behaviors, constantly excuse away what I do, and to be able to admit to another human being that what I did was wrong takes tremendous gvura. But that is life-changing. And if you'd like to know why people have situations and why they're put into circumstances, it's because Hashem knows very well what He's doing. This laboratory of growth called life, Hashem orchestrates very well. And Hashem pairs people up, and whether it be with spouses, whether it be with co-workers, whether it be with brothers or sisters, in a manner that allows them the opportunity to grow or not. But the ability to grow is largely based on your being able to be honest, to be able to come forward, say the words, I was wrong. And so, when you find that you blew it, you made a mistake, if you actually tap into that inner strength and say the words, what I did was wrong and there is no excuse, I want you to do that and I have one more step. I want you to memorize that feeling. I want you to think about how hard it was to do it. And I want you to think about what courage and how many days it took you to fortify yourself to actually say the words, I was wrong. And why do I want you to memorize that? Because I want you to understand how difficult it is so that the next time someone else does something wrong to you, you realize how hard it is to admit it. You see, we are very, very quick to criticize, very, very strong in our criticism, but that begets an interesting reality. Yerucha Zadikim explains, if I stand up and begin punching you, imagine I stand up, I punch you, kick you. It's human nature for you to defend yourself. That's instinctive. If I'm going to pummel you, you're going to fight back. That's just human nature. Yerucha Zadikim explains, so too verbal abuse. If I say strong, caustic words to you, it's instinctive, it's natural for you to fight back against me because I'm attacking you, you're going to fight back. What happens in every relationship? He did something wrong to me, and I have a complaint. So I tell him, you know what you did, and I say it very strongly. And what does he hear? He hears me attacking him. And when I attack him, what does he do? He has no choice but to fight back. Not, not only doesn't he apologize, he fights back, so I fight back. So Before you know it, it scales up, out of control. And the great principle is, if you have something to say, and you're going to say it, start soft. Start soft. 
and don't come on hard, don't come on strong. If you could start out with an apology, it's even better. If you could open up, at least with the words, you know, I don't mean this to offend you, or even better, if you could compliment the person. You know, you're great and you're wonderful, but I, I just want to explain to you that, you know, something happened the other day that hurt my feelings. If you speak that way to a person who's reasonable, if you speak to a peer that way, they're open maybe to hear it. But if you're going to react the way we always react, guess what? The reaction back is going to be very, very negative. So the next time you apologize, I want you to stand there and feel the pain. Feel how hard it is to admit that what I did was wrong. I who was from, put, I began under Hashem's throne of glory. I was put in this world to be great, to be phenomenal. I was put in this world to be greater than Malachim. I did something wrong. I can't admit it. I can't, I, I can't stand that. And I live with these falsehoods. I live with these constant lies. And for me to, ab- to be able to actually admit to another human being that I was wrong requires such strength. Memorize that feeling. Feel that so that the next time you're about to open your mouth to be come on strong against someone who did something wrong to you, you remember how difficult it is, you'll start soft. Again, hopefully, maybe even with a compliment, and you'll be far more successful as a human being. I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous yesod. What Rashi says is the adulterers will not engage in such an act until a wave of insanity enters them. Explain if they come in, what do you mean a wave of insanity? If they're insane, they're not responsible. What that means, says the Sifte Chomim, is until their Yetzirah is more or Lemheta, until their nature teaches them that it's permitted. How could a teacher permit it? If she's a Tznu, if she's a modest woman, it never can be permitted. And if she's a Prutz, if she's a promiscuous woman, she doesn't need it to be permitted. And the answer is Hashem created this force called imagination. When you read a book, when you <clears throat> engage in mind just drifting, your mind drifts and you're feeling things. You watch a movie, you go to the theater, and you feel that experience. What's happening to that person there is happening to you. No one understands what that is. It's a flight, flight of fancy. It's imagination. And Hashem created imagination for primarily to be the equilibrium in the human. There's a part of me that's so great, the Chelek Kimimal Maineshama, that can do nothing wrong. The only way I can do something wrong is by making it right. And Hashem gave us this imagination to allow me to create fanciful worlds where I feel, at least on some level, a rational lie. It's somewhat rational. It's a lie, but it's somewhat rational. Enough for me to buy into, enough for me to accept, and suddenly now I have real free will. You will never find a human being doing anything wrong. Tugun Crowley wasn't evil. Hitler wasn't evil. They all had a beautiful tale. They all rode on a white steed, wore white hats, were heroes in their own biography, because that's the way Hashem created the human. I can't do anything wrong. And when you understand that, you understand one of the great jeopardies that we're in. If I can't do anything wrong, then I can't grow. If I'm incapable of admitting at least to myself that I've done things wrong, how could I change? How could I grow? And if you don't learn to really deal with this, you're stuck at whatever level you're on and you can never change. And the ability to be man enough to stand up to the plate and stare another human being in the eye and say what I did was wrong and there is no excuse is one of the greatest opportunities of growth. Because what you're doing is you're forcing yourself to be honest with yourself. And suddenly you're training yourself that I'm not perfect. I'm not supposed to be perfect. I was put on the planet to grow and to change and to become a greater person. And by definition that means there have to be flaws. 
and being able to see my flaws, admit them, and then be able to work on them is one of the keys to success. And when you understand that, you also understand how to talk to other people. As much as I'm sensitive, everyone else is as sensitive. And if I have something to say, I start softly, and I begin with a gentle word, again, hopefully with a compliment, and hopefully I'm much more successful. And I'd like to close with one last observation. Rabbi Ari Levine was known as a tzaddik in our time. He was a Jew who lived in Yerushalayim, and he was a tzaddik. He was, from the 1920s and 1930s, he used to visit the prisons in Israel, and every Shabbos he would visit, he became very famous, because in those days the people who were locked up were the people who were fighting for the Jewish state, and Begin became a real chassid of Rabari Levin. Many of the original fighters, pioneers of Israel became, they were very attached to him, because he was such a warm, kindly person. And he had this way of just getting into people. And every Shabbos he would go to the prison. Every Shabbos he would visit. Many of the prisoners were political prisoners. But there were plenty of prisoners who were not such holy people. And there was one prisoner who never would speak to Rabbi Ari Levine. Rabbi Ari Levine would come in and say, Hi, good Shabbos, how are you? Be so friendly and nice. man wouldn't speak to him. And week after week, Rabbi Ari Levine would go to him. Week after week, the man would ignore him. Finally, after a number of years, the man softened a little bit. <clears throat> Rabbi Levine was able to speak to him. Rabbi Levine <clears throat> began spending more time with him. And one day, Rabbi Levine brought tefillin, and he asked the man to put on tefillin. And the man said, put on tefillin, I'm a murderer. How could I put on tefillin? I killed my neighbor. I murdered my neighbor. <clears throat> Rabbi Levine said, listen, what you did, you did. You could put on tefillin. And the man said, okay. But I can't put it <clears throat> on this arm. This arm murdered a man. You have to put it on the other arm. This is a murderer arm. I can't put it on this. You have to put this. And Rabbi Levine, instead of putting it on the hand he should have, he put it on the other arm, put it on the Tefillin Rosh, made the brachas, and left. I want to share with you an interesting idea. This arm did not kill his neighbor. He killed the neighbor. Why can't you put it on this arm? This arm is okay. This arm not. This arm didn't kill the neighbor. You killed the neighbor. But killing a neighbor is such guilt. He can't bear it. The arm did it. Somehow it's, it pushes it away. And if you'd like to see the human being being so creative, just watch a person who's done something clearly wrong. And you see imagination in its full glory. And you understand that it functions in you and I all day, every day. And the secret to growth is to recognize it. And the secret to growth is to learn to be honest, recognize the human nature in me and in others and eventually able to grow, change, and become the person you put on the planet to be. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. If you have any questions, please feel free to put them in the chat. It could be, excuse me, it could be questions on this schmooze. Excuse me one second. It could be questions on any topic. Um, I also want to mention, please feel free to go to the schmooze site, or the Shmooz podcast, or the Shmooz app. There is uh, a number of series, one for <coughs> Shavuos. There's a minor series called At the Foot of Har Sinai. I go through what it was like being at Har Sinai, with the Psukim, the Gemaras, etc. It's a very interesting <coughs> way of getting into Shavuos. On the homepage of the uh, Shmooz site, you'll see the Marriage Transformation Boot Camp, uh, as well as a number of other, Musavad is also there, um, a number of other things. 
Okay, um, please feel free again to write your question into the Q&A. I'll gladly try to answer it. And um, Okay, <clears throat> what happens when you realize that both of you are wrong? How can you apologize without making it sound that the other one is completely right? <clears throat> and what happens if you know that if you say sorry, the other party will continue fighting? Then what? Okay, <clears throat> so from real life, I can share with you that not everything you said there is accurate. Number one, how can I apologize when we're both wrong? The answer is because I was wrong. You were wrong. That's that's your part of the equation. But I was wrong. There's no such thing, especially in a marriage, but in any relationship. You know, you see, if you fight, well, look, if I go to Israel and fight with the with the, the Saudi Arabians, if I fight with it, so they're an enemy. <clears throat> but we don't get into fight with fights with enemies. We get into fights with our peers, people that we love, <clears throat> people who are supposed to be of the same ilk, the same mindset, and the simple reality is, I said, you said, I said, you said, and who's guilty? Both of us. There's no question in any fight, any situation, I said things wrong, you said, well, you said it first, you said more. more. There's plenty and plenty of guilt to go around. So number one, if you'd like to know who's guilty, the answer is both, but I'm not responsible for you. what you've done, I'm responsible for me. So I'm able to say the words, what I did was wrong, and there's no excuse. I'm sorry. Now, so number one, even though I know you're wrong also, and you did plenty wrong, that doesn't mean I can't stop the fight, and doesn't mean I can't apologize. Now, number two, you say that the other party will continue fighting. I ain't, ain't seen that yet. I have not seen that yet. A sincere apology once, twice, three times. Okay, I'll grant you. Sometimes in a marriage, it requires a number of times. I once coached a guy, <laughs> this is not a joke, I once made a guy say these words 100 times. 100 times. I made him say the words, I'm sorry, there's no excuse. Bah, 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 bah. I'm sorry, there's no excuse. Bah, 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 bah. I'm sorry, no excuse. After 100 times, it was over. So, I'm not here to tell you that every fight ends with just, I'm sorry, and it's done because you see the fight has to do with hurt feelings and because it has to do with hurt feelings feelings don't just like oh you feel bad oh great now I feel good again you hurt me you really hurt me and I really feel badly and your apology is just words so the reason why an apology often takes a second time and a third time and maybe even more is because there are feelings involved and the words, I'm sorry, are just words, but my feelings are still hurt. Nevertheless, I guarantee if you say it, say it, say it again, it stops the fighting. Okay, <clears throat> can the but reveal caveats of putting situations into perspective that acknowledges the full truth of why the infraction was committed in the first place? So <clears throat> the answer is yes, it can, but that's not how it's going to be perceived. You see, <clears throat> when I apologize... I say what I did was wrong. The but says what I did was right. And even though you're right, in perspective it's true, meaning what I did wasn't so bad, I never would have done it had I realized it, and I was under pressure. And Okay, all that is true. But the problem is, I hurt your feelings. And your feelings are hurt. And when I say the words, I'm sorry, they're cheap. And you know they're cheap. And what you really want to say to me is, those words are nothing compared to the pain that you caused me. So if I give a really sincere apology, you're going to feel there's a great imbalance. Why? Because I caused you real pain, and what I tried to pay back was a little tiny little bit of apology. 
it doesn't really balance out. So therefore, if I apologize, you still feel there's a great imbalance, and what I've done is far worse. But if I say I'm sorry and there's no excuse, at least I apologize. And the minute I say I'm sorry, but, what I've now done is explain why what I did was right. What I did was justified. Now again, even though it's true that what I did was justified and it's not as bad as it looks, but what you're going to hear is a reason why what I did was correct. What I did, I should have done more. I should have done it more intensely. I should, meaning the but says that what I did was justified, proper, and good. I should have done it. You mean not bad enough? You hurt me, but you should have done it. You give me reasons why you should do it. You do you understand what you're doing? You're digging the hole deeper and deeper. When you apologize, you say what I did was wrong. The but says, ah, but it was justified. It was okay, and you ruin the apology. Don't ruin a good apology with a but. And I wish I can't find. I don't know where that. Somebody put it away. I don't know where. Maybe Pesach cleaning. I can't find that certificate. My Musa graduation certificate. But it, for ten years, it was on the on the shelves. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Marvelous share. Would you please tell me if there a psychiatric case described into the Torah? Thank you. Okay. Um, so the Torah deals mostly with with balanced psych. In other words, you know, it's very interesting because modern psychology. Um, seems to specialize in abnormal psychology. But normal psychology is almost like a forgotten subject. I mean, now it's becoming a little bit more, you know, Martin Seligman, Seligman is beginning, there, there's a movement now to, to begin studying, but meaning psychology as a field began with the abnormal, with the people who weren't functioning, with the study of the disease states. And the result is that it offered very little to help a person be happy help a person become balanced. And unless it was a, you know, unless a person was not functional, unless a person couldn't deal with life, there was nothing that psychology had to say to him. And therefore, it kind of evolved into a strange situation. The Torah was written for sane, balanced people. The Torah is given to sane, balanced people and teaches how to grow, how to become greater, how to improve. Now, a big part of that is working on our character traits. That means working on my anger, working on my humility, working on being kindly, those are all character traits, and that's part of being a successful person living a Torah lifestyle. Um, but again, the Torah really it, it was written for and deals with what I call normal psychology, and the psych- psychiatric piece. First of all, I don't think there are ever as many ab- people who are suffering as today. You know, I, I say this often that that physically we have it better than any generation in the course of history, and we suffer less physically than any generation. A regular tax-paying citizen in our world enjoys luxuries that kings of yesteryear couldn't imagine. Physically, we have it great. But I believe emotionally, psychology, we suffer more than any generation ever. And there's more psychosis, more issues. And I mean serious problems. Trauma and people who can't function. People who can't get out of bed in the morning. People who can't go about their life. So our generation has an abnormal amount of abnormal psychology. Um, but no, in, in answer to the question, I think no. Basically, the Torah deals with with the normal and teaches how to work on issues within a normal, uh, you know, sort of personality. Okay. Um, okay. I understand that Shavuos is a yomtov remembering Kabbalah Torah, but Chazal say that every yomtov has the same school as of the original day. In that respect, what is the specific avoda? that is appropriate for us in regards to Kabbalah Satorah. 
Okay, a very good question. Meaning, what should my focus be on Shavuos? What should I be thinking about? So, really, one of the things that a person should try to do is relive Kabbalah Torah. I mean, open up Shemos, Perikites, and read what was it like at Har Sinai? <clears throat> what was it like at the giving of the Torah? Why? <clears throat> because that was a moment in history when Hashem revealed Himself. Hashem said, Anochi Hashem Alkecha. <clears throat> and Shavuos is a time when we try to tap into that feeling, tap into that moment. By the way, that series that I that I mentioned before at the foot of Har Sinai, <clears throat> the reason why I spent four shiurim, I went through the, you know, Pasuk by Pasuk, going through it is because that's the theme of Shuas. And that is a major theme of what we're supposed to focus on. So obviously on Shuas we're supposed to learn, and we're supposed to, you're supposed to also eat cheesecake, don't forget to eat cheesecake, but then you're supposed to learn, you're supposed to daven, but <clears throat> focusing on Kabbalah Torah, what it was like, and what it was like on Sinai, what it means, and more than anything, trying to grasp the feelings of Hashem's presence, Hashem saying, Anoch Hashem Lekecha, receiving the Torah, you know, V'yu Be'necha Kechadoshim, Every day the Torah is supposed to be new. It's supposed to be like a new experience, like, wow, let's go. And Rashi says, that's literal. Every day the Torah should be like brand new, like, wow, I just got this Igeris, I just got this letter from the king, wow, let me read it. But that excitement requires focus. That, re- that excitement requires focusing on and thinking on. So Shavuos is, to a very real extent, should be a day that you think about that, you focus on it, you be- get in touch with that. Okay, what if the other spouse just assumed that I did something that would hurt? How could I apologize? Okay, so let me be very, very blunt. Did you mean to hurt her? Now, if you meant to hurt her, we'll have another discussion. But I have to assume that you didn't mean to hurt her. And that's exactly what you apologize for. I never would have hurt you. I had no idea that I hurt you. I would never mean to hurt you. I apologize And worse than that, I don't even know how it hurt you. Please forgive me. But listen to what I'm apologizing for. I'm not apologizing for my words. I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing because I hurt you. You're the most precious person in the world to me. I would never dream of hurting you. And clearly I hurt you. And that's what I'm apologizing for. And by the way, the less you know what you did wrong, the more you're able to apologize. Because I never would have done anything to hurt you. I didn't mean in any sense that, but I've hurt you, and that's what I'm apologizing for. I'm apologizing because I hurt your feelings, your pain, and I would never dream of doing it. I feel terrible that I caused you pain. Maybe if you could help me understand what I did and how I did so I could not do it again, I would appreciate that, but what I, I feel terrible that I caused you pain. So I think even if your spouse thinks that you did it maliciously, um, if you're, again, I assume that you didn't, um, if you explain it, that that's exactly what you're apologizing for. I never would do anything to hurt you, and I clearly did. And that's what I feel terrible about. I hope you're able to explain that and, and be able to... To Okay, are you allowing... Uh, am I allowing a loud question? Yes, so raise my hand. Okay, let me go over there, and let me... Uh, Romy, let me call on you. Allowed to talk. Romy, you got the floor. Please, go for it. Yes. Romy, I think you have the floor. Oh, wait, no, you don't. I have to undo your mic. I'm sorry, wait. Uh, wait one second. I have to make you able to speak. I think you could speak now. Hi, Rabbi Schaefer. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi. Hi. So I was, uh, I, was uh, I didn't understand something. Rabbi is saying that, that the Neshama, before I do something wrong, 
I, I, I can't do anything wrong, so I have to rationalize. Right. But then once I do do something wrong, so then then I, my neshama feels guilt. There's a feeling of guilt. <clears throat> What's the balance between that? Because if I feel guilty, so then before my neshama is telling me I can't do anything wrong because I'm too great. But now that now that I did do something wrong, my neshama says, how could he have done something so wrong? So isn't that okay. is it like a manifestation of the Yitzhara? Yeah, exactly. So the Chavetz Chaim explains, <clears throat> if you have a telescope, if I take a telescope, it can take something far, far away. I look at it and it takes something far, far away. It makes it look close. But if you turn it around, it does the exact opposite. <clears throat> Here's the way Yetzirah works. That Avera, come on, it's a little Avera. It's not a big deal. Other people do much worse. You're a good guy. You could do it. It's not big. For weeks and weeks and weeks, he tells you it's the smallest sin in the world. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a big deal until you do it. You did that Avera. Do you know how big that Avera is? Do you know how bad that is? Suddenly, he takes, he turns around the telescope and he makes it the biggest sin in the world. And that's called the trick of the Sutton. That's called the trick of the Yitzhahara. And it's not, I mean, again, it's a whole part of the human dynamic, but it's not really exactly what I'm speaking about here. What I'm talking about here is this ability to believe what I want. Now, there's a part of me that knows it's a lie. It's a rational lie. When I rationalize... It's rational, but it's a lie, and I know it's a lie, but there's enough there for me to buy into it. Now, the guilt comes in because I know it wasn't really right, so I feel guilty, but it is right. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. And that fight is, which voice is going to be stronger? Am I going to buy into the lie? Now, what happens is, by the way, the more you give in, the more you give in, the bigger the lie becomes, because it has to become, because the guilt says, you really shouldn't have done it. Yes, I said, because it's good. You really shouldn't have. Yes, it is. It's good. It's great. It's wonderful. And the more I give in, the bigger the lie becomes, the more I buy into it, and the more it becomes something that's real and right. And that's ultimately one of the fights, to be able to be honest with yourself and say what I did. And by the way, it's not even easy to admit it even to yourself. Forget to somebody else. Just to stand in front of the mirror and say, I messed up. What I did was wrong. You mean I'm a failure? No, I'm not a failure, but I failed. You mean you're a worthless slime? No, I'm not a worthless slime, but I failed. I failed doesn't mean I'm a failure, but I failed. I messed up. I blew it. This was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. To admit that even to yourself isn't easy, because again, I'm a human being, and human beings are created to be great, and admitting that I did something not great isn't that easy. So I'm just, which uh, mm-hmm. I'm just a little unclear. So the feeling that I can't do anything wrong is is the neshama talking or the yeah. talking? So, well, here's how it works. The neshama will not allow me to do anything wrong. So to allow for a person to do wrong, the Yetzirah is allowed to speak in my brain. You ever notice there are different thoughts that come across your brain? Not every thought that crosses your conscious mind is you. If you desire something, you know, an image will come into your brain. Boom, get out of here. An image comes out. Get out of here. Where's the image coming from? I don't want the image. I want it out of my brain, but it's there. <clears throat> the Nefesh Bahami is able to use your brain as you use brain. I spoke about this in one of the previous <clears throat> shmuzim. It's it's like a, a like a computer. Imagine five school age kids <clears throat> right after supper are all fighting for the one family computer. Whichever child gets control of the keyboard is going to determine what the screen shows. <clears throat> but each child has to watch the screen. One child is going to be, you know, math problems. Another problem is going to, another child is going to play, play games. <clears throat> My mind is the computer. There are different forces that get to control it. I get to control it sometimes. <clears throat> Nefesh Bahami gets to control it sometimes. Anger gets to control it sometimes. Desire sometimes. <clears throat> but whoever gets control of that keyboard gets control of the brain. And all of us have to watch the flow of consciousness. So <clears throat> there will be many thoughts that you're going to think that are not you. 
that are your brain. Your brain is speaking in your voice, and it's and it's words that sound like you, but it's your brain being controlled by anger, by jealousy, by desire, whatever it may be, and it's going to say things that sound like what this is good, this is right, this is proper, this is good, and those rational lies. That's your imagination. The imagination is your ability to fancifully believe it and accept it because it's not true. And your neshama is able to say it's not true, but it does sound a little bit true and it does have a little ring to it. And, and therefore you could get seduced and pulled into it. Does that help a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Okay, Can I good. Ask one more question? Go for it. You got the floor. Gregor um, was mentioning before in regards to how nowadays there's so much comfort and pleasures, but that's on the outside. And currently there's a lot of mental things and emotional issues. Yep. So, could Rebbe elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, is it Tali Zebaza, or is it, like, what, what's that? I mean, the answer is, each generation has its tests. You know, in the 1920s in America, the Messiah was to keep Shabbos. I know a man, he told me his grandfather lost his job 80 weeks in a row. Friday, he would come into the boss and say, boss, tomorrow's the Sabbath, I can't work. The boss said, don't come in Saturday, don't bother coming in Monday. He lost that job. And he got another job. Came in Friday, boss, I can't come in tomorrow's the Sabbath, I can't come in, don't come in Saturday, you're not coming in Monday. Eighty weeks in a row, he lost his job. Now this was the Depression era, and getting a job wasn't so simple. And if you didn't have a job, you couldn't pay the rent, and all your possessions were put on the street. In that time period, keeping Shabbos was a major nesoyen. My father told me that the Shkom and Minyan started, you know why? Because people had to go to work on Saturday. They wanted a Dhamma and a Minyan, Shabbos. And they start an early minion, 6, 7 in the morning, they daven, and then they'd go to work. The Shkama minion really started for that reason. And, and people would make a, ki- a kiddush. When they're able to retire, they're 65, 70, they were able to retire, they made a kiddush because they could keep keeping Shabbos again. And it was a different world. That was an sign of that generation. We don't have those kind of nasionas. And we're given tremendous cover to learn, we're given tremendous honor, our parents push, everything is, is great for us. And materially, we have it phenomenally well. We don't suffer. I mean, I was going to say we don't suffer disease. Um, I better be careful about that one. But meaning the black plague, we don't suffer. We don't have marauders. We don't have pogroms. We have it materially. We have it better than any generation in the course of history. Zelu mazeh, Hashem always keeps a balance. The, the fight, the challenge of our generation is far more in the psychological, emotional arena. And you have many, many people who suffer anxieties and depression people of OCD, people an entire gamut, and people who really suffer acutely. And not that they chose it, and not that they wish it to be, but they suffer in very real ways. That's that's our generation. That That's the test of our generation, which is very different than a test of any other generation. Okay. 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 I'm going to shut your hand. Anyone else who wants to take the floor, if you're brave enough, you just raise your hand, and I will um, try to call on you. Um, if not, you could type it in. If you're shy, you're more than welcome to type the questions in. But if you are brave enough to raise your hand, I will gladly give the floor over because the advantage of that is I don't have to speak. But um, uh, please feel free to either put a question in <coughs> to the box or to raise your hand. Uh, okay. Let me take a question from over here. Oh, good. No, no questions. No unanswered questions. Beautiful. I love. It. Feel free to ask a question on this schmooze or any other topic. Um, 
Thank you, Rob. That I like. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Good. Um, I asked the question again. I didn't want to answer it the first time. I tried to ignore it. The question is, how come my Jewish brethren in Bar Park don't wear masks or observe social distancing? The doctors in Gadolador say to follow those instructions. Are they fakers, have no respect, or ignorant to hold the government and doctors in contempt? I don't know. I don't know. It's a very difficult, very difficult situation. Listen, you know, at a certain point, it has to come to an end. In other words, meaning, you know, New York City has a 20% infection rate. Many neighborhoods in New York City have a 40% infection rate. If you have a 40% infection rate in your community, the odds are basically good that anyone who's going to get it has got it. Listen, in, in my house, my wife and I had corona. We have three kids with us. They didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. How could it be? They, my, my daughter was, was waiting on his hand and foot. She kept on giving us food, and, and there was no mask, no social distancing. We have three kids who were in the house with us for the, how many weeks we had corona? I mean, four weeks. We were sick for, and really sick, and they didn't get it. Why? I guess their immune system is better than, the point is, when you have a very high infection rate that reaches a certain point, and let's say 40%, basically anyone who's going to get it probably has it already, and there's a certain point when it's like enough, you got to come out. I, listen, I'm not rationalizing, I'm not excusing it, and I go to Minion every morning with a mask, and I keep six feet distance because that's what's done. But between you and lamppost, I don't know. In New York City, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. So if, if the if the Godoliadors say to do it, I'll do it, and I'm going to still wear the mask, keep social distance. Um, if you ask me why people don't, I think because eventually you just get fed. It's just enough, and at some point you just have to. I don't know. What can I tell you? I'm not. I don't do it, but I, I, I certainly I hate to say I understand a little bit where they're coming from. All right. Was one of the questions that we didn't want to answer was when I asked about people going off the derech. Um No, that that question didn't bother me. Um, it's the the question about marriage. <laughs> that I didn't want to answer because um, when you get married, you'll understand. That's um, I had a guy once. I, I was Friday night. I was speaking somewhere, and and it actually, was, I was speaking about marriage. I don't only speak about marriage. Believe me, the shmuz you listen to the shmuz you see it's many many topics. But anyway. It happens to be that they asked me to give uh, you know something a marriage, so I spoke there, and someone walked me out afterwards and said, "You know, you talked about you know giving in, you know giving in fifty fifty, and everything's good. I don't understand. Why don't you just if if, if you just give in totally, if you're totally mavater, if you give in always all the time, one hundred percent, you'll always have peace. Why don't, why don't you say to do that? I looked at this fellow. I said, "You're single, right?" He said, "How do you know?" I said, "Because I know." <laughs> so what I'm saying is. Certain questions you only ask if you're not married, um, so that's really why. That's kind of why I didn't want to a- answer that question then. Uh, okay, um, but but feel free to put in any questions that you have. Um, I try. Thank you for answering. Nice attempt. Okay. <laughs> again, I'm not defending. I'm not telling you it's right. I, and and I again, I wear the mask and I. I keep my, but again, there's a certain point where I, I understand why people just say enough already. It's months and months. Come on. And by the way, people, you know, some of us work for a living. You know what I mean? Like, again, it depends on your line of work. Some people don't have a problem because they can work from home and keep their job. And said a lot of people, if you own a store and your store is closed for three months and you're not a phenomenally wealthy guy, you're in trouble. You bought inventory, you're floating a lot of money. And there is no income. You're paying rent. You're paying a lot of expenses. You have no income. And you're in trouble. 
And there are many, many people who spend decades building a, a thriving business, but they're not phenomenally wealthy, and being able to sustain three months, four months of being closed threatens literally the solvency of the business. So I, you know, I feel when, when a business owner says, hey, enough, we got to open up, we'll try so, social distance. And again, you should try to keep social distance and use the mask. Whether it helps or not is very questionable. Again, in my mind, and when you have infection rates this high, I, but fine, if the doctors say so, I accept it and do it. But the bottom line is, you got to recognize that that if a fellow wants to open his business at a certain point, you got to give him the opportunity to do that, and uh, you know, and and appreciate what he's going through. All right. Anyway, so again, I'm not excusing it, but that that is what it is. Okay. Good. Let's let's stop at this point. I want to thank you all for joining. I wish you a good Kabbalah Satora. Please join us next week, and much much atzlacha, a good yontif. Thank you.